off this set with Lover's Rock. And I guess that's it for me for my freeform show this semester, but it's been great having all you guys listen, and I hope you have a happy holidays. And coming up next is Living Writers. to anywhere maybe we make a deal maybe together we can get somewhere any place is better starting from zero got nothing to lose maybe we'll make something me myself i got nothing to prove that was Tracy Chapman, Fast Car, one of my old favorites. Glad it was chosen by our guest today. This is The Living Writer Show on WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. And I'm Amanda Yuli, your host today, and we're speaking with Adrian Brodeur. Hello, Adrian. Hi, Amanda. How are you? I'm great. Thanks for uh, joining us today, and thank you for choosing Tracy Chapman to start us off. No problem. <laughs> um, Adrian is the author of the memoir Wild Game, which is receiving great attention this year. I know, Adrian, it's, I've seen it this week. Uh, we're taping December 16th, 2019, and I've seen it on Best of List for People magazine and Real Simple, and I think it was Amazon's best memoir of the year on that list. Um, congratulations on all this Thank happening. You. It's um, been thrilling. It, it is thrilling. It's a thrilling story that you've told um, and a, just a beautiful book. So we're so glad we have this hour with you, with you on WCBN to speak about the book. Um, so for our listeners who um, are new to the book, I'm going to first read um, your bio just from the back flap so people understand who you are, Adrian. Um, and then I think it would be great if you could sort of introduce the book for us. Um, first, more about Adrian. Um, Adrienne Bordeaux began her career in publishing as the co-founder with filmmaker Francis Ford Coppola of the National Magazine Award-winning Zoetrope All Story. She has worked as a book editor and is currently the executive director of Aspen Words, a program of the Aspen Institute. Um, and Adrienne, is this your first book, Wild Game? Uh, it is my first memoir. I wrote a novel years and years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, well, tell us about the memoir, and maybe we can talk about the novel as well later. <laughs> okay. Tell us about um, the memoir. Well, Wild Game tells the story of my very complicated but loving relationship with my mother, whose name is Malabar. And the book starts with an incredibly pivotal moment in my life, you know, arguably the most pivotal moment of my life, and then discusses the repercussions that rippled out and lasted for decades afterwards. So, the night in question, um, I need to give you a little bit of background on, but it, it the story starts um, on Cape Cod in 1980 on a hot July night. I was 14 years old, and I was upstairs in my bedroom asleep or half asleep and half thinking about a boy I'd been smooching on the beach earlier <laughs> when um, <clears throat> all of a sudden my my door opened and my mother came into my room because Ben Souther was my stepfather's best friend. 
Um, and then Souther was married, which, of course, my mother was married, too, to my stepfather. But these mm-hmm. were couple friends. And what I didn't know in that moment, and I don't think my mother knew either, was that this would become just an epic love affair in her life. And I was swept along into, into involvement in the affair and sort of as a as a collaborator and a you know, advisor. But what I did know, even in that moment of being woken up, was that it was it was one of those <clears throat> life-changing episodes. It had a before and an after, and I'd gone to bed that night as my mother's daughter and firmly <laughs> rooted in the land of childhood, and I'd woken up as her best friend and confidant and in this very... Um, appealing and and exciting adult world. So much of the book is about my entanglement in that affair and also my sort of figuring out how to reclaim my life in my sort of late 20s and 30s and and figure out how to how to move forward from there. Such a fascinating story, an unusual story, I think, too. Um, and you have told it so beautifully. The The memoir, while factual, of course, uh, mm-hmm. reads like fiction to me. Um, mm-hmm. And in fact, very suspenseful and very exciting, uh, wonderful fiction at that. Oh, thank um, you. No, of course. So, you know, I wonder when you talk about that episode um, when you were 14, it makes me think because I am an adult, like we are adults. What was, what do you think your mother as the adult in that situation was thinking? Was she thinking about confiding in you for one night or was she thinking about, uh, this kind of epic, the length of this, um, epic affair? Yeah. Well, I'm sure she didn't know what she was stepping into at that moment, or certainly I'd like to believe she didn't know that. Yeah. Um, that said, you know, <laughs> I've spent much of my adult life thinking about this, and more than ever, now that I'm a parent, and I happen to be a parent of a 14-year-old daughter at this very moment. Oh, you are, yes. I, <laughs> timing, timing. <laughs> um, I mean, I think a lot about that. Like, if the unimaginable happened, and I made such a mistake as to do something impulsive like that, and I imagine it was an impulsive moment on my mother's part. Mm-hmm. I imagine she'd had way too much to drink. I imagine she was just needing to talk to someone, and it was too late to call some friend in New York or somewhere else. And she kind of stumbled into my room and said this. Here's what I imagine the next morning would look like for me as a parent. Um, more or less, oh, good good Lord, what a mistake I've made and how to undo this. And sitting down with my child and saying all that, just saying, you know, just just cutting it off at the knees right there. Yes, hours later. Right? Hours later, you know, <laughs> perhaps even later that same night. But the fact is my mother didn't do that. And that did not seem to occur to her. And we only got more and more close and more involved and more codependent on each other throughout this, you know, decade-long mm-hmm. affair and involvement on my part. And so, you know, what's strange, of course, is, you know, at, at my age and with my daughter being her age, <clears throat> I can completely relate to how any reader or someone listening to this podcast might think of 
what a burden, what a terrible thing to put on a child. Mm-hmm. But the odd thing was that the experience itself as a 14-year-old was utterly the opposite. It was one of the most exciting and seductive and magical times of my life because, yeah. of course, you know, we all wanted, we all want our parents' love, and suddenly I had my mother's full attention, her adoration, her, I mean, she needed me in a lot of ways that parents don't typically need their children, mm-hmm. and it just, it felt like one long adrenaline rush. You know, there were all these emergencies, there were all the, there was so much emotional drama, and it was just oddly thrilling to be a part of. And teenagers love that sort of drama, right? I mean, they just, <laughs> oh, that's indeed, who they, they are. Do. <laughs> yes. yes. Well, it's easy to see how you, as the young person in the relationship, and also the child um, in the in the relationship, were um, kind of carried away with it. Um, do you think your mother, um, did, do you think it occurred to her to have that sort of, to cut it off at some point? You know, I don't think it did, um, or certainly not. Till much later, when when possibly she comprehended more of the damage that was done. Mm-hmm. But I also think, you know, one of the interesting things about the process of writing memoir was stepping into her life in a much bigger way and really researching her childhood and trying to understand a lot about her that I think isn't typical of a child a child's understanding of her own parent. Mm -hmm. But memoir forced me to do that. And what I discovered is, you know, simply how much worse her childhood was than my own, how Mm. complicated and destructive um, her parents had been to her. I mean, really, my childhood looked like a walk in the park comparatively. Mm -hmm. And I say this only to say that I think all of our childhoods seem normal to us. They're, you know, that is... We only have one set of parents. This is how we go through life. And unless, you know, there's some, well, I was going to say unless there's some terrible abuse or something. I Mm -hmm. mean, I just, I think we think this is normal. And it was normal to me not only because my mother had introduced it to me, thereby normalizing it, but also my understanding of her family situation and to a certain degree of adult life generally confirmed that this was normal because I knew that her parents had gotten married and divorced and married and divorced from each other Mm -hmm. and that there had been affairs. And I knew this in part because we had discovered or my mother had discovered that she had a half-sibling when she was Uh a young woman who became part of our lives as we were growing up. And so there there were all sorts of ways in which this didn't seem shocking to me. Um, And plus, my own parents were divorced. And I'd, you know, heard rumors and discussions on their part and the ways that children find out all these things of their infidelity. So I don't think I was shocked by any of it, or Mm -hmm. thought it was completely out of the ordinary. I think I I probably thought most, most grownups acted this way. And you were just in on it a little. And I was just in on it in, in a way that was kind of unusual. I wonder if you can tell us about how, I mean, my, my big question is, how did this book come to be? Um, you, you lived this experience for 10 plus years and there were ramifications. At what point in living it and in being complicit in the secret and all the other things, at what point did you say, this is something 
this is also my story. Because that's that, to me, that's what you're doing with, with this book. This was a story of your mother and the and per, perhaps your stepfather and this other man and other things. But, but it's also your story. So when did it become that way for you? That is such an, I want to say such a nice question. Like, I, oh. I don't think it's ever <laughs> been quite put to me that way before. And it is my story. It is who I am. I, I mean, who I am is such a direct result of of these early life events. Um, so I don't think, you know, I consciously, you know, I don't know when the, the specific thought <clears throat> of it being mine entered my head so much as, as you can imagine, it took decades to process. Mm-hmm. And I was always writing about it without, even before I knew I wanted to be a writer, I was, you know, I, I kept journals. I, I, in my young adult life, I did write some, you know, quasi-terrible short stories about it. <laughs> um, and I was always exploring it, even in the stories that we, you know, make part of our cocktail conversation and so on. So once The Secret came out, um, which was when I was in my mid-20s, um, it gave me a certain freedom to talk to friends about it because before it had been just an enormous secret and a burden at that because, you know, secrets above all else keep us from being known. We have to, you know, so in every yes. friendship, in every relationship, you know, whether that's boyfriend or teacher or mentor or what have you, I was holding a huge part of myself from that person. So once the secret came out, I realized, you know, and I did talk about it, I mostly handled it in this kind of lighthearted way, like, uh, how hilarious, you know, I mean, mm-hmm. and, it, uh, and I think that was to deflect the pain of it on some level. I think humor is often used that way. And mm-hmm. so even when I did start trying to write about it, um, and I wrote a modern love essay that touched on some of these themes, I also wrote um, a romantic comedy that never saw any traction, but that I, you know, I explored how convoluted these family relationships mm-hmm. were in this sort of, you know, it wasn't quite slapsticky, but how you kind of keep a secret like this hidden. And and it was, I'd say, the, the real game changer for me was meeting the man who had become my husband and wanting to start a family. And realizing that although I had done a lot of work to come to terms with my story, to come to terms with my past, that I was really fearful of, um, you know, not making the same mistakes, but of, Mm -hmm. you know, I knew I wanted to mother in a different way from how I'd been mothered. And I knew that, you know, if we don't heal from these things, we risk repeating these behaviors. And there'd been such a cycle or such a legacy of secret keeping and deception in my family that I just was very determined to put an end to it. And Uh so starting when I had my own daughter, um, and I have a son as well, but starting about 14 years ago, it just sort of was, came to the front of my consciousness and was uh, something I thought about a lot and regularly. So, so writing the book, it sounds like is part of um, the healing and part of moving on and changing, but it's, I'm hearing in your voice, a lot of determination to be a different kind of mother, right? All of the above. Yes. Yeah. You know, very much so. And, and 
definitely, you know, it, it's funny you ask about, or you mention sort of the healing process and, and all of that. And I, I think it's all part of the same, the whole of, of processing and moving on. You know, forgiveness is part of that process, too. And it mm-hmm. doesn't mean that you're sort of putting a blanket over the transgressions so much as you're noting them and moving on from them. But I, I do think you know, the healing and the progress continues. I think in some ways, you know, as a culture, we, desi- we desire for, <laughs> cl- we desire Quick. closure yes. on many such things. And yeah. I'm constantly asked if the book has sort of put a close to this. And I sort of think, yeah, and no. Well, how you know, could this, it? It's, this yeah. is my thing. And this <laughs> is, I will be having these uh-huh. conversations with myself and reflecting on my mother and my daughter uh-huh. and, you know, all, my complicity for the rest of my life, I'm sure. Sure. Well, Adrian Brodeur is author of Wild Game. It's a memoir out this year, 2019. And you are listening to The Living Writers Show on WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. Um, Adrian, we're going to learn more from you about um, your writing process and the book and how this, this book came together. But it's time for a song break. And unlike last time when we heard Tracy Chapman, this time we're going to hear as chosen by you, whale songs. And so we're going to hear, we're going to hear more about why um, after the break. Thank you, Adrian. Is a short selection of whale songs, which are <laughs> r- relaxing and beautiful to some to listen to. Adrienne Berger is our guest. She's author of Wild Game, which um, the New York Times called exquisite, harrowing, and gorgeously written. Um, Adrienne, tell us why you chose whale songs as part of um, this hour on The Living Writer Show. Wow. I mean, it's almost dangerous for me to listen to because they just set me immediately in this mood. But I <laughs> the writing them, mood. I'm, I'm sure not every listener will agree, but I listen to those and I just feel transported. They are so haunting and eerie and mournful and they always make me curious. I mean, they just kind of sound like the deep past to me. I don't know mm-hmm. if that makes any sense, but I'm also, I've always been fascinated by whales and the idea that these sounds can echo across miles and miles and that they have these relationships. But I, um, I in fact, can't listen to anything as I write, but I often would play whale songs early in the morning. I got up insanely early in the morning to write this book, usually between 4.30 and 5, and I would... Oh, my. That's far too early. (laughs) I would sip my coffee and listen, and it just put me in this sort of beautiful quasi-meditative state and there are also these sounds are very evocative of the cape to me not that i 
particularly, you know, hear whale songs all mm-hmm. the time on the Cape, but occasionally you do when you're swimming, and if you dive underneath the water, you can hear. Um, but I just, I find them, I don't know, nothing could just sort of set me in the mood of this book like whale songs could, and I would listen. And I have to say, um, I feel quite convinced that should my children listen to this podcast, which they probably won't, they will be mortified to know that now the world knows I listen to whale songs because they occasionally would come out, and every now and then I play them just to, you know, drive them a little crazy. And um <laughs> Yeah, they find it embarrassing. Embarrassing. Well, I don't think it's embarrassing. I think it's lovely. <laughs> um, so this sort of gets to your your process at writing the book. Uh, you know, when we spoke before, we kind of got to that point where um, you told us about why you chose to write the book. But then, then it comes to the how. So I imagine this is an enormously complicated proposition. Um, your mother is alive, I believe. She is. And um, so... Why don't we just, we can start there. (laughs) Help me understand how you navigated all the complexity of uh, telling this story um, and reclaiming it as your own. Right. And of course, it's an entirely changing process as you move through the territory. So yes, one of the things that I think I have in common with almost every memoirist out there is a huge panic about hurting people we love or Mm -hmm. sharing information that's necessary to tell our stories that also, you know, reveals stuff about other people. And I, you know, my mother and I have a very intense bond, as we always have. I mean, we've gone through periods of estrangement and had difficult times, but we're also, we've remained, you know, close in that sort of counterintuitive way throughout all of it. So I think it was probably around five or six years ago that I really felt determined um, to to write this in memoir in this direct and straightforward way. Um, and I think in that moment, I sort of started to find my voice in the whole thing after, you know, as I told you, kind of trying to fictionalize it, trying to mm-hmm. deal with it in humor in these other ways that I... I came to recognize how it needed to be told. And I did, and a lot of the people in this book had already died at that point, Um, both my stepfathers, one of my stepmothers. Um, And, you know, the truth of it is none of it was about outing her affair. That had happened years and years and years ago. So the big thing that was going to be revealed was my involvement, not Mm -hmm. the the affair itself had happened. And mm-hmm. so that felt easier to focus on. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the, I was committed to staying sharply focused on my mother's and my relationship and what we did and not draw, sort of bring in a lot of the other characters. I mean, they had, they had their role because they were alive and existed as part of this affair yes. and might have been hurt by it or other things. But I, I wasn't trying to settle scores or or deal um, directly, you know, as you can imagine, almost every relationship is complicated. But I, I, I maintained a steady course um, on my mother and me. But so, you know, I think it was around five years ago that I, I let her know that this was my plan and that I needed to write this book. And, you know, to her credit, she understood mm-hmm. that need and, you know, I can't say 
she was enthusiastically supportive. I mean, I'm sure it caused her a lot of anxiety, but she was helpful, and she did give me access to a lot of material I wouldn't have had access to. Um, She was a big chronicler of her own life, so she Mm -hmm. gave me scrapbooks and photo albums. And, of course, she was a writer, too, so... You know, she was a food and travel writer, and, I mean, she was an amazing cook. So I, she gave me sort of her diaries, which were much more <laughs> food diaries, but, mm-hmm. you know, recipes and, you know, thoughts during days about meals. And, you know, if she went to Paris, it would, you know, you or I might go to Paris and write about La Tour Eiffel and other things. I mean, she mm-hmm. just went from foie gras to wine to, you know, the, the sort of food of. That's <laughs> like a fun read. Trips. Yeah, sure. exactly. But so, you know, once I, you know, I don't think permission is the right word, but once I got the permission or, or told the people I needed to tell that this was my plan mm-hmm. and I felt freer to do it, the first thing, um, that was really altering and wonderful for me was I, I, although I'd done sort of much draft kind of sloppy writing beforehand, I, I got a writing uh, residency at Hedgebrook uh, for three weeks, which just seemed like such a gift. And also, you know, like many mothers who are writers, I felt a great deal of, is it possible for me to leave my family for this amount of time? Mm -hmm. And so on and so on. I have a very supportive husband. So I did that. And it was a game changer for me. Um, You know, I I really got a toehold on the book on Whidbey Island. I wrote or drafted probably two and a half or three chapters and then really outlined the entire thing. I sort of knew the, or felt like I knew the scenes that I wanted to explore. And you, you mentioned, and other people have, that the, that the memoir feels sort of like a novel. And I think that that's because it was so scene-based for me. Like, I, I absolutely knew it had to start with the night that my mother woke me up from the kiss. And they were just, I had sort of moments like that that were sort of that called to me is this is a chapter and then I had to figure out the connective tissue but in any case I I made incredible progress just understanding what the endeavor was going to be in these several weeks in Woodby Island and then of course I came home and thought huh well, you know, possibly, you know, in 10 years, I'll have another opportunity to write somewhere for three weeks. <laughs> and it was a friend of mine who sort of said, you know, no, you actually need to touch it every day. And I remember just feeling such hostility <laughs> for her because, of course, she was she's a successful writer. She doesn't yeah. have children. She uh-huh. happens to be a Zen Buddhist priest. <laughs> but I was just like, come on, there's no way. But it is indeed advice that I followed. And I started, you know, in just the most modest of ways, just sort of getting up 20 or 30 minutes earlier than usual and writing Mm -hmm. before my children woke up. And, And it was such an important transition to understand, and at least this is how it works for me, but I think it would work this way for a lot of writers, but by touching it every day, and I really mean every single day, even Mm -hmm. if it just means thinking about it, but Mm -hmm. spending some allotted time engaged with the work, it it changed the lens through which I heard every conversation, read any book. It, It was... It was almost as if everything in the external world, once I started writing every day, fed the book somehow. 
And yeah. that that was wonderful. And I started getting up earlier and earlier. <laughs> it like it was it. about, you know, I, I never started writing after five. I mean, it really mm-hmm. was always right around five when I would start. I would make some coffee and I'd sit down, maybe a whale song, mm-hmm. and then begin. And so that way I, you know, and my, my husband started to, you know, step in and do much more of the early morning work with the children. So I would have three hours um, before I really had to get up and shift gears. And I I progressed really quickly. I mean, I had a draft mm-hmm. of the whole book written within a year, and I showed it. I, I didn't have an agent at the time, and I showed it to my now agent, and she loved it. And we sort of went back and forth and strategized um as to how to best present it and sell it. And her feeling was to polish about 100 pages, uh, which was the first four or five chapters, and then and then sort of bullet point the rest of it in into sort of an outline um, and to go from there. And once she sold it, um, you know, in the revising of it for publication, which also took probably another year or a little less than mm-hmm. a year. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it did change dramatically, you know, in those bullet points, things that I thought we'd go from point A to point B. I realized there were like three chapters in between. But basically, I, I stuck with it, um, the shape of it, and mm-hmm. revised. And it, it went it went quickly, which in part, I think, you know, has to do with how long I'd been thinking about the material. Yeah, when the moment is there. You're yeah. ready. And then you just, and in publishing, a couple of years is actually pretty quick right. <laughs> to write it and I know. Then sell it <laughs> and then sound, revise it. Might it might sound slow to a lot of people, but it, yeah, I mean, people spend, you know, 10 years writing books. Yes. Um, so the research, I, I was really fascinated to hear you say that your mother provided you um, some materials. I imagined that your research here was primarily plumbing your own memory of these times. Um, but you had, you had more than your memory, it sounds like. Oh, definitely. I mean, you know, everyone's sort of what I was saying about my mother's journals as compared to mine. I mean, I think everyone's journals sort of focus on different things. Mine, especially from sort of teenage years are very emotional and sort of fraught. I mean, they changed over the years. Um, but they're also very meal-based. Meal I mean, I, I remember <laughs> events. Um, I remember a lot of my early childhood, or I shouldn't say early, my childhood moments with my mother surrounding these extravagant meals she made. And she was just an incredible cook. She'd studied at Le Cordon Bleu, and she worked in the test kitchens when we lived in New York of time and life. And then when she married... Um, her second husband, my stepfather, uh, she started teaching cooking classes out of our home, but also really writing cookbooks. And she had a food column for the Boston Globe. So she was doing all of that. But she would, I mean, she was as incredibly grand <laughs> as her first name, Malabar. And uh-huh. she would just have these parties, these dinner parties with just all this wonderful food. And so I might, I'm getting to how this connects to memory, but <laughs> I might remember, you know, a feast of squab as the book opens. But I could also, what I realized is I could confirm a lot of these memories mm-hmm. based on 
her food column and recipes that she was actually producing or recipes that were in her notebooks because um, I could see them getting tested at different years and what was happening. So there was a lot of, you know, I think anyone's life requires I mean, you'd be surprised how difficult it is just to write the timeline of your own life. Like, we all remember the year we graduated from high school and college and when mm-hmm. we got married and these types of things. But some of that slippery in-between stuff, um, you do have to put it together like a jigsaw puzzle. And one of the documents I have is just this enormous timeline that starts with the birth of grandparents and their major markers and my mother's major mm-hmm. markers. And then, you know, and then I would get in touch with you know, waitresses who I worked with at the clam bar to just make sure these were the years I had been there and, you know, checking it against them. And there's just, there's a lot of of factual work to do in your own memoir. I I mean, at least I think so. Um, We all know how fallible memory is. Yes. Well, you do such a remarkable job in the book of matching the facts, which are the relationships and the times, and you say job at the clam bar, et cetera, with all these luscious um, sensory details. And a lot of them are about food. For those of the, those of our <laughs> listeners who haven't uh, read the book, um, we are listening to, or you're listening to, The Living Writer Show on WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. And I'm Amanda Yuli. We're speaking with Adrian Brodeur, who's author of Wild Game. And Adrian, um, I want you to read a bit, and I think that the selection that you're going to read after our break has a little something, at least adjacently, to do with food. Um, So after the next song here, maybe you can set that up for us and then read a selection. Great. Okay. Um, Let's have a break. Yesterday, a child came out to wonder, caught a dragonfly inside a jar, fearful when the sky was full of That was Joni Mitchell, and you're listening to The Living Writer Show on WCBN-FM. Um, Adrian Brodeur, you're joining us uh, via phone today, um, and I hope that you are able to kind of introduce for us a selection from your memoir, Wild Game. Sure, I'd be happy to. So I'd like to read a part from the book that happens about a year into the affair. So In this section, I am 15 years old, um, and I'm trying to think what readers need to know. You already, um, readers and listeners, Mm -hmm. um, you know that Malabar, my mother, was a wonderful cook. And what you don't know is that her lover, Ben, was an avid recreational hunter and fisherman. And so in this in this sort of desperate attempt, um, the, the affair was conducted in plain view. These two couples were, were couple friends, and, but my mother and Ben were always trying to figure out ways to spend more time together. And in this scene, um, 
they kind of hatch a plan. And what I like about this moment is that it also shows how involved I already was and how critical I was to their plans. So it's Malabar, her husband's name is Charles, and the lover is Ben, and his wife is Lily. They're the Southers. So I'll read now, and it's also set on the Cape. Malabar was still in the kitchen when the rest of us put on jackets, went out into the crisp autumn air, and sat in a semicircle around the deck table, its center umbrella lowered and strapped for the season. The sun was making its descent behind us, casting long shafts of light across the harbor and creating the illusion that the marsh grass was on fire, glowing golden from beneath the surface of the water. From inside, the whir of the cuisine art sounded as my mother blended the liver and vegetables. I realize I've forgotten to let you know that Ben Souther brought uh, some venison and venison liver with him. Mm -hmm. Back to reading. No doubt adding chunks of soft butter and salt flakes. Across the windswept bay, we heard turns screeching, and suddenly dozens materialized before us and dived towards some underwater disturbance. Then the surface of the water broke with a thrash of fins, what my father called a bluefish blitz, and thousands of minnows leaped to escape, the fish hunting them below, only to be snatched up in the beaks of blacked black-capped turns above. I studied Ben as he observed the carnage. His body twitched the way some men's bodies do when they watch a football game, imagining that they are catching a pass. I could tell that he would have liked to grab a rod and dash down to the water, which is what my father or my brother would have done. But instead, hearing the rapping on the glass slider, he turned to help my mother, who stood on the other side, holding a large round serving board. They beamed at each other as she slipped past. The birds dispersed, and their feeding frenzy ended as ours began. Malabar lowered the artfully arranged pre-dinner offerings paper-thin slices of ruby-red venison carpaccio under dollops of horseradish creme fraiche, a bowl of wrinkled and briny olives, two triangles of overly ripe cheese oozing past their soft rinds, and a dish of her ethereally smooth venison pâté tucked in beside a collection of cornichons and slices of pickled onions. The tray was a thing of beauty, each delicacy separated by sprigs of rosemary from my mother's herb garden and garnished with lilies' nasturtium flowers. Malabar admired her handiwork and let loose a hearty laugh. If something on this board doesn't kill us, I'm not sure what will, she said, raising her glass, to salmonella. Legionnaires, Charles toasted. I raised my glass and took a big swig of ginger ale. Bring on the bacteria, Ben said, taking hold of Malabar's free hands. He kissed her palm. Malabar, I can think of no better way to go than to be poisoned by you. The ice-cold soda got stuck on a knot of remorse in the back of my throat. Lily registered my distress by rolling her eyes at me, a look that I took to mean, I'm not worried, so don't you be. Pay no attention to these old fools. Seeing Lily's lack of concern, I relaxed a bit. Still, something on my face had given away my concern, and I felt sick that Lily had seen it. 
stupid I chided myself, and I willed Ben and Malabar to be less obvious. My mother spread generous scoopfuls of venison pâté over thin slices of toasted and buttered French bread and placed one round onto each of our open palms as if bestowing the host at communion. We popped them whole into our mouths. The flavors and textures settled over our tongues as the whipped and gamey layers revealed themselves in slow motion. Heavenly, Ben said, his words muffled around his mouthful. Charles nodded. Wait. Everyone, I have an idea, my mother announced dramatically, bringing her hands down on the table. I perked up. This was my cue. My mother and I had practiced how to mortar each brick into this storyline, and it was crucial to get Charles and Lily on board. This conversation could not be solely my mother and Ben. That wouldn't look good. My role was crucial. Malabar took a leisurely, palate-cleansing sip of her power pack. That's a dry Manhattan. Her audience leaned in. What do you think about, she paused for effect, a wild game cookbook? I took another sip of ginger ale and waited a beat. Charles's eyebrows lifted in contemplation. He was no doubt imagining what the next year of test dinners might promise. He'd been enjoying the fruits of Malabar's labor with her do-ahead dining column, but this had not always been the case. Earlier, Early in their marriage, my mother had agreed to put together a charity cookbook for the middle school that my brother and I attended. The other parents, decidedly unsophisticated cooks, submitted recipes for one... And for one very long year, Malabar tested the gelatinous one-dish casseroles. Charles would arrive home in the evening, take one look at my mother hunched over the stove, the telltale red notebook on its stand, and cringe. No, sweet, not another test night. So what exactly counts as wild game, I ask now? Sounds a bit gross. Just meat, meat, and more meat? Oh, Rennie, not at all, my mother said. Our cookbook can be whatever we want it to be. It should definitely include seafood. Just look at the bounty out there. And vegetables, the type you can forage for. Lily, you could teach me about mushrooming. Lily smiled at the thought of having a roll. But who would buy it, I said, playing devil's advocate, my tone hinting that the adults were out of touch. Not everyone has a hunter in their midst. You guys are the exception, not the rule. All this, I pointed to the tray of appetizers, is not exactly normal. Normal, my dear, my mother said in her most regal voice, is not something I've ever aspired to be. Okay, fine, you're not normal, Mom, but not one kid in my school eats pheasant or rabbit. There will be like 10 people who will buy this book. I disagree, Rennie, Lily said. I exhaled. She had taken the bait. Think of all the people who are becoming dismayed by the food industry these days with how we raise meat in this country, she continued. The chemicals, the pesticides, the conditions. Hook, line, sinker. My mother blinked love my way, Morse code style, and Ben tapped his knee against mine under the table. Brilliant idea, sweet, Charles said to my mother, and he reminded us that his children all love to fish and hunt. Count me in. Me too, Malabar, said Lily. What fun it will be. Ben and my mother were silent for a moment. 
They looked upward as if, oh, I'm sorry, I just misread something. Okay. So right after what fun it will be, Ben placed his hands behind his head and tipped back in his chair. Hold everything, he said, his smile enormous. Not so fast. We haven't discussed royalties. Seems to me that the hunter-gatherer couple should get a cut, greater cut than the cooking-eating couple. Oh, Ben, Lily laughed. You stop that this minute. Do we have a title, Charles asked. Ben and my mother were silent for a moment. They looked upward as if a title might fall from the sky. How about something simple, Malabar said. We could call it wild game. It tells the reader what to expect, but promises adventure, too. It's perfect, Lily said. Ben touched his glass to my mother's, to our wild game, Malabar. Thank you. That was Adrian Brodeur reading from Wild Game, her memoir. Um, Adrian, this is such a telling example of uh, such a such a my complicity. Yes. <laughs> uh, well, you know, you know, the question I wanted to ask as I was listening was about um, the, the sort of dramatic moment that this represents. Um, it's a big one in the book, um, and just like a fiction book, just like a novel, um, your memoir is full of these pivotal moments, these important turning points. And um, I wonder if you experienced them when you were 14, 15, 18, whatever you were in the same way, or whether um, when putting the book together, you sort of put them back together like a puzzle. Does that question make sense? You know, were you, how were you experiencing it in the moment? Right. Was it as I... big? I think it was a little bit of both. I the, the one of the most complicated parts of writing for me was to remove my adult self from these early chapters to the degree that was possible. Um, you know, in my first very rough copy, <laughs> my uh, my grown up self would sort of you know be desperate to let the reader know <laughs> what I was thinking and how wrong yeah. I understood this to be in hindsight. And what I wanted to do was be much more in the moment of how I experienced it at the time. Well, I had little panics all the time, but they were not really related to the the greater consciousness of what I was doing. It was more about being panicked that I would be the one who would somehow um, trip up the the very elaborate lie that we had created. Your panic was was your own guilt. It wasn't about yeah. your about your mother. It was about yourself. No, it was about. Um, yeah, I didn't want to blow anything for sure. her. I just it was it. Everything seemed so very high stakes. So it was less about feeling guilty in those moments. Although clearly, I felt some guilt and mm-hmm. and the. I mean, I think that was the balance that kept shifting every year was that if if there was sort of closeness to my mother and this this these incredible feelings associated with that on one side, it was the growing consciousness about the fact that we were hurting people on the other. Mm-hmm. And so in this section, there's this moment of understanding or of fearing that Lily or Charles were picking up on something. Mm. Whereas later it would become, you know, as with my stepfather's death, a a much more profound guilt of having not been a good stepdaughter or friend to him. Mm -hmm. Um, 
I lost a little bit of the thread. Well, of, oh, no. the original question was sort of um, about these dramatic moments that right. that were so, in your life. So yeah. in in cobbling together my past to create the book, it was it was a back and forth of trying to let the story be told and then and only letting letting my more mature consciousness come in in the later chapters. Was that challenging to do? Because, I mean, I noticed that um, you bring to those earlier chapters when you're a young teenager, um, there is that spirit of, um, I don't know, the, the sort of reckless 15-year-old spirit that um, that is in all 15-year-olds. Um, <laughs> you, you embody that very well. But I think that there's a note of wisdom of your present wisdom in it so um how did you (laughs) i think so much of that took place in the revision and in the editing Uh and i you know it is hard to remove it all i mean there's no way you can write entirely as a 15 year old when you're a 53 year old yes (laughs) but um or you know i was in my early 50s when i wrote it um but it's yeah it's a juggle it's it's a balance and that's where you know, going back to an earlier question, you know, there's catharsism. There's there's what is cathartic about writing, but it is also art. It is also you are producing a, a piece of work that you are writing in an intentional way. Um, yes. And, and the, you know, you're thinking, you're making decisions in the writing of it, what to include, what not to include, how to present information. And so it is all true. But every decision you make gives or takes something away from the reader, right? Right. And yeah. you, yes, yeah, I think you've done that masterfully. I think that most adults don't want to read something only written by a 15-year-old with only that perspective. So I think you've, you've watched no, the line perfectly. When, when you insert yourself too much in the beginning, it's very sort of preachy. Yeah, <laughs> there is <laughs> that. I had to silence my inner preacher. <laughs> <laughs> well done. Thank you. I think we'll take one more short break to hear um, Patty. Uh, actually, we're going to hear a song by Peggy Lee that, that you wanted to illuminate for us a little bit. Do you okay. want to do you want to tell us uh, why you selected the next song that we're going to hear? Well, it's it feels so um different not that whale songs didn't but um <laughs> from the earlier selections and my mother was not someone who I recall who loved music. I mean, she didn't always have the radio on or always have something playing, but in my childhood, I remember there were three albums which are all which all had nothing in common with one another whatsoever, but that she played with regularity. And I mostly remember her playing them on the Cape. It was something that we would do when we drove from New York or later from Boston. We would play these albums. And one was, of all things, The Beatles. Um, Mm -hmm. It was Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. And one was Frank Sinatra's Songs for Swinging Lovers. (laughs) And the final one was Peggy Lee um, and this song, I'm a woman. And I we I just remember we would kind of blast it and often sort of dance around the kitchen together and it was really just sort of one of these mother daughter moments and I thought the song was hilarious with its whole, you know, I can bring home the bacon, etc. But I also you know, now that I think about it in the past, there's no way my mother would ever describe herself as a feminist and yet 
I think she was a feminist. I think she did these, you know, she put herself first in a way that I don't think there were a lot of models of women doing in her day. I mean, she was born in 1931. And, you know, she survived so much pain and trauma in her life. You've heard about some of her early childhood stuff. But I mean, she also lost her first child. And it was not a time where you were allowed to sort of bask in your grief. And, you know, the the expectation was kind of move on, sort of put on a good face. And for some reason, this song just brings out some side of her that I, I don't feel like I saw all the time, but that was always there. So I sort of love it. Let's hear it. Peggy Lee. up 44 pairs of socks and have them hanging out on the line I can start an iron two dozen ships for you can count from one to nine I can scoop up a great big dipper full of lard from the dripping can throw the skillet go out and do my shopping be back before it melts in the pan cause I'm a woman Scrub till this old house is shining like a dime. That's Peggy Lee on WCBN FM Ann Arbor. I'm Amanda Yuli, and we're listening to uh, the Living Writer Show on WCBN FM. Um, we're talking to Adrian Brodeur today, who is author of Wild Game. And Adrian, thank you for the reading that you did uh, previously that sort of illuminated um, even more of the relationship you have with your mother and how it came together in this book. Um, you know, we talked earlier about, uh, this notion of your, um, claiming the story of your, your childhood and your early adulthood for yourself. And it made me think just knowing what I do about your background, it made me think about your other work. So you have published many others work uh, by working as an editor, you were co-founder of a literary magazine, um, can you and you're now executive director of Aspen Words. Can you talk about how that work sort of connects and interfaces with your own writing? Absolutely. Um, and part of it goes back to some of the story of the memoir, which is um, I really think of literature as one of one of three things that helped me reclaim my life. So. You know, just to treat it in broad brushstrokes, sort of there was a time in my mid to late 20s when I really hit rock bottom, you know, when the when all that had happened to me kind of came together and I realized that where I was in my life was not where I was supposed to be. And that Mm -hmm. was both where I was physically, which was San Diego, California the person I was with, um, and, and also my, my career, my chosen career. I had a master's in public policy. I had, I had sort of 
with two writers for parents, I I never thought that I wanted to go into that. But also, I hadn't been, I'd been a reader the way a lot of people are readers. I was a good student and all of that, but I'd never been one of the people who, one of the children who had a flashlight under their blanket and, you know, spent every night reading, as I feel like so many writers have. But in my mid-20s, my father started dating and would later go on to marry, um, this woman who just became a force for good in my life, she's Margot in the book, and she owned an independent bookstore. And starting from the very first time I met her, she would press these wonderful books, novels, memoirs, short story collections, essay collections, poetry, into my hand. And it was as if she intuited that I was in a lot of trouble, which I was, but I'm not even sure I knew it yet. Mm. And the long and short of it was the effect of all these books that she kept giving me. I, I just became a ravenous, avid reader. And she was giving me books, when I think back on it, that mostly featured young female protagonists getting themselves out of very complicated situations. <laughs> and I think what I, you know, understood on a subconscious level or what, what, how they helped me on a subconscious level was just see a path, see, see that people did have difficult predicaments in lives, and I wasn't the only one, and they were figuring, they were figuring out the way to go. And I have since just come to understand fully how reading, and I, and I suppose writing too, is such a deeply empathetic act because you are fully immersing yourself in other characters' lives. You are seeing their world through their perspective. I mean, you almost can't read, and I mean, it would be very difficult to read a novel um, while maintaining a distance. I mean, it just wouldn't be a satisfying experience. Right. Right. So... I think somewhere during that time, you know, I realized as the stacks of uh, public policy journals and political journals went <laughs> down on the bedside and the stacks of literary journals and novels and so on rose, but that this is actually where I wanted to pivot towards in my professional life. And so when I did make the bold move to leave my first marriage, leave where I'd been living, which was California, and, and leave my career, which I sort of made significant strides in, to go and try to enter the literary world. Um, it was just, it was, a, it was a major moment, obviously. But one that I've never looked back from, I, I feel so lucky to have discovered, even if it wasn't, you know, from the get-go, that this is the world in which I wanted to navigate my professional life. Um, and it's been an entirely satisfying one for me. I, I love discovering new voices, which is mostly what I did at Zoetrope All Story Magazine, um, which I founded or I started working on in late 1995 and produced the first issue about a year later in early 1997. And I ran that magazine for about seven years, which was one of the just high points of my professional life. Um, I went on to become a book editor and then later left that to become one of the directors of Aspen Words, first as the creative director and now as the executive director. And it is also an organization that 
loves to amplify underrepresented voices, but also to help writers and readers in all sorts of ways. Um, the mission is, well, I won't give Tremendous it. <laughs> work. I'm a, I'm a tremendous fan. Adrian. thank you so much for joining us here today on Living Writers. I wish that we had more time. I have more questions, but, <laughs> but, but we are out of time. Thank you for spending this hour with us. Thank you for your memoir, Wild Game. And we hope to talk to you soon. Thanks for having me, Amanda. You are listening to the Daily Sports Report on 88.3 WCBN FM Ann Arbor. My name is Evan Osterley. I am here with Nick Hornberg, Daniel Thompson, and our soon-to-be birthday man turning 21 at midnight, Lucas Vargas. Lucas, how excited are you for tonight? Yeah, well, I actually am 21 now, uh, so... Oh, so, uh, okay. yeah, but, uh, it's, uh, it's been a journey, man. It's been a, it's been a great life so far and I hope to keep it going. <laughs> <laughs> we're, we've, we're all recently 21. I'm the oldest person on this panel. That's kind of sad. Yeah, I turned 21 in July. I turned 21 in October. Yeah, 21 in February. So really, we got yeah. some seniors that, that are, that just hit the 21 mark. Yeah. I'm, yeah. I, I am in the minority in that I turned 21 during my senior year. Wow. That's definitely. Yeah. I, 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 so, so I started college at 17. Oh, wow. It's the one thing I have in common with Quinn Hughes. You <laughs> <laughs> both go to Michigan, went to Michigan? Well, he went. I still go yeah, there. Yeah, so that's, that's not common either. Okay, well. I yeah, but. We've got some, some questions from, oh boy. from our fans. Oh, no. So we're going to start out with somewhat of a philosophical question. The question comes from Morris Fabry in Durham, North Carolina. And his question is, why should anybody watch football? Watch any Michigan football. any football any football, or any football. football. Oh. and the separate question we'll get into as a follow up because I enjoy it. Why I think is his question. What part of football do you enjoy? 